This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Expectations. What does it all mean? What do we all think going into a season? It's easy to forget what we think going into a season because then it gets muddied by what actually happens. Today on Rico Bronia, we talk about the expectations for 2023, but also the expectations the Mets have faced Over the last 30 plus years, we know what the results were. We know what ended up happening that year, but what the hell were we thinking going into each season? We'll focus on that today. Our big rewatch will occur Sunday night into Monday of the Super Bowl. It is game seven of the 1986 World Series. We have supplied the link uh, of where you can watch that game. It's on YouTube. I've tweeted it out. We've put it in the profile here when you download Rico Bronia so you can watch that game. And we are going to break that bitch down in painstaking detail on the very first ever Rico Bronia rewatch. And I must say, thank you. Thank you to the audience for voting upon a win. Because the more I thought about it, the more I realized, did I really, did you really want to sit down for two and a half hours of our life, three hours of our life, like it's pathetic enough that we're watching an old game. That's already mockable. Trust me. I've already been mocked. But to sit down and watch a painful loss, like what the hell's wrong with us? What are we, masochists? So luckily we picked a game that ends with a championship. Game seven of the 1986 World Series. Unfortunately, one of the most disrespected games in Met history. Because what we learn, me, I'm 39. What we learn if we're under 42, about 86, is we learn about Game 6 of the NLCS, and we learn about Game 6 of the World Series. Game 7 has been forgotten about, but not anymore. Not after we're done with the very first rewatch of Rico Bronia. All right, let's get to expectations. So this season, and it's easy to think this as we enter spring training just about a week or so away, to know that the expectations for this Met team They're incredibly high, and rightfully so. They're coming off a year in which they won 101 games. They're coming off off an offseason in which, even though maybe there are some who don't think the Mets improved themselves enough, they have gone out and spent a lot of money. They go at Justin Verlander to replace Jacob DeGrom. Kodai Senga to replace Chris Bassett. Jose Quintana to replace Taiwan Walker. Running it back with Brandon Nimmo. Improvements in the bullpen, including David Robertson and Brooks Raleigh. Obviously, we could argue from a paper standpoint how much better this team has gotten. But here's the truth. They won 101 games last year. And they won 101 games in a division that was very good with the old unbalanced schedule, which disappears this year. 
So you could argue with six less games against Atlanta, maybe not the six less against Philadelphia because the Mets did such a good job of beating up the Phillies, but when you're facing everybody in Major League Baseball as opposed to those extra games against a really good Atlanta team, now you are taking away some games against a really bad Washington team, that the wins should come at a higher pace this season. But 101's a big number. Let's face it, it's the second highest win total in the history of the franchise. But between what they did last year, between the money that's spent, the expectations coming into 2023 are as high as ever. In fact, they're the highest they've been in 30-plus years, at least if you base it on the over-under when it comes to wins, which we'll talk a lot about over the last 30-plus years because that's the best indicator of trying to figure out what the expectations were for a season 15 years ago. Other than our own memories of what we personally expected, the best documentation you can find to really look at what the expectations were for a Met team going into a season is to look at the over-under. So this season, and look, you can go to FanDuel, you can go to DraftKings, you go to various sports books. In general, the number that we're seeing for the over-under for the New York Mets is 95 and a half. 95 and a half. In the last 30 years, going all the way back to 1990, because that's the latest I could find data on over-unders and betting odds. Couldn't find anything in the 80s and the 70s, so it's really just the sample size of the last 30-plus years. This is the highest over-under the Mets have ever had. Now, we've had seasons, as we'll go through, in which expectations have been high, and certainly we remember a few of them in terms of what they did in the offseason, but when you look at the over-under coming into this season, it's not only the biggest over-under the Mets have ever had, it's kind of significant. Like, in the last 30-plus years, if I asked you to guess right now, how many times have the Mets gone into a season with an over-under above 90? It's not that big of a number. And it certainly hasn't happened a lot in the last 15 years. So the expectations to win, that's the bottom line. Like We'll start with the minimum expectation. The minimum expectation is they got to be a playoff team, especially with the format that we have now. If the Mets are not playing October baseball and they aren't in the postseason for the second straight time, which would be the third time in their history they've even made the postseason in back-to-back years, we're all throwing a hissy fit. We're doing angry Ricos all winter long. The minimum expectation is to make the postseason. Obviously, it's how you get there. As we learned last year, the Mets won 101 games. I think we all would have been thrilled with 101. But when you lose the division the way they did and you collapse against the Braves the way you did, we don't view the 101 the maybe we the way we would view 97 this year if it means winning the division, division by seven and a half games. But this year, this team comes in with 95 and a half wins expectations. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. Let's go all the way back to 1990. Now, these years, the first few years we're going to go through, are right before I really remembered what the hell was going on. In 1990, my dad would take me and my sister to games, but I don't remember much. I remember slightly cheering for Daryl Strawberry and screaming Daryl at the top of my lungs, but I don't remember much. The Mets in 1990 was really the last year of their success, the late 80s success. They won 91 games, 
but their over-under was 88. So it's fair to say they kind of met their expectations, but the reason they didn't make the playoffs is that the Pittsburgh Pirates won 95 games. They won the National League East, the first of a couple of division titles they won in a row. They won 90, 91, 92. So they won three division titles in a row. And I do remember the latter part of that Pirate run and hating them and hating Doug Drabeck and hating John Smiley and Barry Bonds and Andy Van Slyke and Don Slott and all those schmucks. But in the first year of 1990, the reason the Mets didn't win the division, besides really not playing well in September, playing very mediocre baseball the final month of the season, they had a stretch in 1990 in which they won 18 out of 20. And they were actually in first place in early, early September. But the Pirates exceeded expectations. They won 95 games in a year in which their over-under was only 78. So 1990, you look at and say, okay, they met expectations. It was supposed to be a high 80s, low 90s win team. They won 91 games. But in that day and age, you don't win the division, you're not going to go to the postseason. So while 91 wins would have been enough to win the division in 2015 (laughs) and subsequently go to the World Series... In 1990, it was a little bit different. 1991, that was the year we lost Daryl Strawberry. All right, so Straw goes to free agency. Cashin doesn't want to pay him. The Mets decide, oh, let's let's see. How do we replace Daryl Strawberry? Oh, I got an idea. Let's sign Vince Coleman. So they sign Vince Coleman. The Mets go into the season with the same win total expectation as a year earlier. How about that? That's kind of weird to me. Like, you lose your best player. You replace him with a guy who, sure, he stole a lot of bases back in the day with St. Louis, but was never a great player. It was not an impact player the way Darrell was. And your over-under going into the year is the exact same number of 88? Well, they didn't win 88. That year, that's when the Mets' collapse really began. They won 77 games that season. And they went into the year with the highest over-under of any NLE's team. So the expectation going into 1991 was that they'd be right there to win the National League East. They did not. And yet again, the Pittsburgh Pirates won a lot of games. They won 98 games that year, won their second straight divisional title, and again, overexceeded their expectations. The Pirates over-under coming into the year, higher than the previous year, but still not that many. It was only 85. So 1991, high expectations, the Mets underachieved. Now, Now we get to my wheelhouse of really starting to understand baseball. At eight years old, turning into nine, I always say 1992 is that first year where I started to get it. The first year where I'm getting the scorecards, I'm filling it out, my dad's teaching me baseball. And how lucky am I that the first year of understanding baseball is the the 1992 Mets. I mean, geez, you talk about being hit with the stick of crappiness. Don't get any crappier than that. It's the opposite of Yankee fans who started understanding baseball in 1996. Oh, yeah, my first year of getting baseball was 1998. I saw the Yankees win 114 games. My first year was 1992. And I do recall that the Mets went into that season with high expectations because of the offseason. They stole Bobby Bonilla from the Pittsburgh Pirates, the team that had won the two previous divisions. They had gone out and signed Eddie Murray who has had a great career up to that point, even though he was in his mid-30s. More recently had been with the Dodgers, but obviously before that was an Oriole. So the Mets go out, and they add Bobby Bowe and Eddie Murray. 
and their expectation, the exact same expectation as a year earlier, an over-under of 88.5. That number of 88.5, believe it or not, the highest in Major League Baseball. So the Mets went into 1992 off a spending spree as a team that was a legitimate championship contender. Highest over-under in all of Major League Baseball. And I do remember that. I remember that feeling going into the season of, we got Bonilla, we got Murray, this is going to be a really good year. My dad's telling me stories about 86, this is going to be our 86, and what a schmuck I was. What a lesson into crappy sports. The Mets were bad that year. They went 72 and 90. (laughs) And yes, the Pittsburgh Pirates won the NL East again. And again, didn't have huge expectations. Their over-under again was 85. They went out and won 96 games. So you're starting to notice a pattern between 91 and 92, and that's the Mets have high expectations. People believe they're going to be good, and it doesn't work out. Now we get to 1993. 1993. We know about this team all these years later, 30 years later, as the worst team money could buy. But they went in to 1993 with an over-under of 84, a little bit down from previous years, but still not bad. It was the second highest in the National League East. Only the Cardinals had a higher over-under. So the expectation, again, was they're going to be in this thing. And I have a very vivid memory from opening day 1993. WFAN had the Mets at the time. And they did a pregame show, and they had like a roundtable discussion. And I'll never forget Gary Cohen saying in front of the crowd, the Mets have as good a chance to win this division as anybody else. That was the bar he set. And the crowd cheered like, yeah, damn right, Gary, you tell them. Well, that team went out and won 59 games and was simply one of the worst teams we've ever seen. So of all the years of expectations, over under 84, 59 wins, that's a minus 25. The Phillies won the division that year. They came out of nowhere, sort of. Uh, They were supposed to be an average team. They won 97 games. They won the pennant. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But that was it. From that moment on, after all the expectations of 91, 92, and 93, we all started to get it. And that was, they suck. They're not any good. We got to blow this bitch up and start over. So 1994 and 1995, you almost have to throw out because we never completed the 1994 season. The Mets were actually having a, a decent year in 1994 as they began their rebuild. They had 55 wins, I think was their number. Right when they stopped things, 
So they were a little bit under 500. 1995, they didn't have over-unders. It was a shortened season. 1996, and I'm sort of stunned by this. In 1996, Generation K, right? Paul Wilson's up. Bill Pulsifer's up. Jason Isringhausen's up. Todd Hundley's emerging as a pretty good player. They acquire Lance Johnson. They acquire Bernard Gilkey. I don't remember this, but the Met expectations was 82. 82 wins going into 1996. And I guess it makes sense because they did show a lot of promise in 95. They closed the season strong in 95. And so there was this hope of, okay, this is turning around. This young core of, especially pitchers, but this young core is starting to show promise. I don't remember vividly thinking they'd be a 500 or above team. But yeah, that was their expectation going into 1996. And 1996 was a very unique year in Met history. They got a historic year out of Todd Hundley. They had a historic year out of one dog, Lance Johnson. They had a great year out of Bernard Gilkey. Three of the great offensive seasons in the history of the New York Mets, but they went 71-91. and Because Jason Isringhausen was terrible, got hurt. Paul Wilson was terrible, got hurt. The Generation K was a bust. A monumental, unequivocal, if that's a word, bust. Disaster. But hey, they had three guys have huge offensive seasons. So they finished 11 games below their expectations. So you see this pattern here of really other than 1990, 91, 92, 93, 96 of they're supposed to be decent or really good and the team sucks. Now things start to shift because in 1997, coming off of that season, a year in which they had these historic offensive years, the Mets were supposed to be a bad team. Their over-under was 76 going into 1997, and I sort of agreed with that. How could you not? Coming off the year that was 1996, and 1997 was a really fun season because the Mets had some great wins. They shocked us all, and they went out and they won 88 games. 88 games had the best season of my lifetime to that point, and Todd Hundley was injured late in that season, but the John Olerud trade was a huge deal. He had a great year for them. That was a big addition. Edgardo Alfonso was emerging as a tremendous player. And there's one game that sticks out, sticks out at me from that year. Uh, it was late in the season. And the Mets, for the first time in my life, had sent out a playoff bill to my dad. They said, hey, playoff tickets. Here's the bill. The Mets were about... I'd say five games out of a wild card spot, kind of in that range, trailing the Florida Marlins, who eventually would not only win the wild card, but win the World Series. And my dad was brutally honest. He said, I'm not sending this bill in. Well, I mean, come on. We're not going to the playoffs. I'm not going to let the Mets hold my money, which I understood. The Mets played a game against the Expos in which they were losing 6 nothing in the bottom of the ninth inning, and they rallied dramatically tied the game on a grand slam by Carl Everett when they were down to their final out, eventually won the game on a walk-off by Bernard Gilkey. For anyone who remembers that game, raise your hand. I'm sure there's about seven of you. And after that game, I said, Dad, you got to send the bill in. You got to send that bill in. This is the miracle Mets, baby. And my dad, I, I hold no ill will towards him for this. He's very smart. He said, sure, Evan. He never did. He lied to me, and that's okay. Because all these years later, I get it. (laughs) I understand why he lied to me. They were never going to make the playoffs. But they did win 88 games. They ended up finishing only four games behind the Marlins that year. 
because the Marlins won 92 games, but it really wasn't a true pennant race. They were in it. It was unique for us for the first time since 1990 being any semblance of being in a pennant race. But they over, look, they overachieved expectations. They won 12 more games than the over-under. They followed it up in 1998. The over-under gets raised to 84 and a half. The Mets go out, they win 88 games. Should have been more. We all know about them choking down the stretch of the year, losing the last five games to Montreal and then to Atlanta. I keep thinking of Tony Phillips striking out against the Atlanta Braves over the weekend. I don't know why I just blame Tony. Jay Payton schmuckingly trying to run on Andrew Jones and get thrown out by a mile at third base. Very bitter end to that season. But they won 88 games, which they had done the previous year, but they couldn't win any of their last five games. Cubs and Giants finished in a tie for the wild card spot, had a one-game playoff. Then 1999, Mets have a big offseason. They add Robin Ventura to this Met team. And we go into 1999 with far and away the highest expectations of my lifetime. The over-under is 91.5, highest it's been, and they back it up. They win 97 games, even though they tried to collapse, but then they recovered late in the season. It was really a 96-win season, because remember, the one-game playoff counts as a regular season game. So they really won 96 games, but they, they overachieved. It was one of the rare times where they've overachieved, even though they've now done it three straight years. So they beat the over-under by five and a half games. They followed up in 2000 with the same over-under, very similar, 90 and a half. Totally get that. They had the addition of Mike Hampton during that offseason, the big trade of Octavio Dotel and Roger Cedeno. So they add Mike Hampton, who was coming off a very good regular season, and the Mets again overshoot the expectation and win 94 games. Lose the National League East, but win the wild card spot. This is the glory days of Met fandom, <laughs> if you're my age. We love the late 90s, 99-2000. Couldn't win a division, couldn't beat the Braves, but we love that team. The Mike Piazza, Al Leiter, Edgardo Alfonso, New York Mets. 2001, they lose Mike Hampton, they don't sign A-Rod, and yet, at least to me, I went into 2001 realizing we are not going to be as good. And this is the same feeling I had about the Jets about a decade later when the Jets lost the AFC Championship game to the Steelers. And I said it on the air to Joe that day, and I said it to anybody I knew. I said, you know, we're not getting back. Like, that's it. That was our shot. I'm not saying we're going to be terrible. I'm not saying we're going to be awful. But we're not getting back to that point. And I think after getting to the World Series in 2000 and coming as close as the Mets had come in 1999, there was a feeling inside me of... This is it. Like, we're not getting back. In 2001, the Mets had 88.5 wins as their expectation, so very similar number, and they really had a terrible season. They closed the year really strong. They got very hot in September. Uh, 9-11 stops the season for about eight days. They then come back. They win the dramatic game on that Friday against the Braves. They win on Saturday. They're making, like, this incredible late push in the National League East, and then had a couple of just awful losses to Atlanta in which Armando Benitez took a deuce on the mound. Brian Jordan haunted us, and the Mets ended up finishing with 82 wins. So they finished six and a half games below the expectations. But my expectations going into 0-1 were just not that high. Maybe I was alone on that. I, I just had a really tough time believing they were going to come anywhere close to what they had accomplished in 99 and 2000. 2002. 2002 is an interesting year. 
Because now the Mets are realizing, okay, we didn't get A-Rod. Instead, we signed Kevin Apier. Uh, We lost Mike Hampton from two years earlier. We didn't have a very good season. Let's go do stuff. They trade for future Hall of Famer Roberto Alomar. They bring back Roger Cedeno. They acquire Mo Vaughn. Like a very aggressive offseason. Uh, they bring in like Sean Estes and Pedro Estacio. They, they really redo the team in a way, which they didn't really do going into 01. 01 was, uh, let's sort of run it back. Let's, you know, not be aggressive and have a big offseason. And going into 02, and obviously history knows and tells us it didn't work out, they did go for it. They went out and traded for Roberto Alomar and Mo Vaughn. So they went for it. And their expectations going into 02 were red hot. They were high. 90 and a half, tied for the highest in the National League with the Atlanta Braves. How about that? And it makes sense. Look at the moves they went out and made. And they go out in 2002, and they win 75 games, 15 games below the expectations. 15! That's 1992-esque. That's 1993-esque. 2002 was an unmitigated, embarrassing disaster. One thing I'll say, though, about that year, Mo Vaughn was not terrible. (laughs) He wasn't. Guy had 26 home runs, 800 OPS. The problem is Roberto Alomar was terrible. That was part of the issue. He sucked. And obviously, the team sucked. 2003, that's the year they go out and add Tommy Glavin, and again had high expectations. Like, think about that. The Mets are coming off a season in which they win 75 games they sucked. They fire Bobby Valentine, right? They bring in Art Howe. They sign, I think, Cliff Floyd and Tom Glavin. Those are the big offseason additions. Okay, something. And their expectations are to win 86 and a half games. So in the same range as a year earlier. And spoiler alert, they didn't. They went out and won 66 games and the tone was set when Tom Glavin took the mound on opening day and got his ass booed off the mound on a 28 degree weather day as the Mets got pounded by the Chicago Cubs so you're noticing this pattern where the Mets get a lot of respect (laughs) how do you go into that season really with it was was everyone that high on Art Howe because of what he did in Oakland like is that what happened 2004 they went out and they added Mike Cameron Richard Hidalgo, Kaz Matsui. Uh, that's pretty much it. Those are their, oh, Braden Looper. <laughs> they bring Braden Looper in. They bring Mike Stanton in. And again, not like really high expectations, but the expectation is 81 and a half. They're coming off a year in which they won 66 games. And their expectation was 81 and a half. They go out and they win 71 games. So 10 games below the expectations right after a year in which they were 20 games below the expectations right after a year in which they were 15 games below the expectations. Think about that. Three straight years, 15 games under, 20 games under, 10 games under. Mets are getting way too much respect. Now, 2005 is a little bit different because 2005 was the beginning of the new Mets. That's when they blow the whole thing up. They hire Willie Randolph. They signed Pedro Martinez. They signed Carlos Beltran. There's, there's certainly a feeling, you, you know David Wright looks like the real deal. 
Let's include that because David comes up late 2004, plays really well, looks like the future face of the franchise. So I get 05 because even I felt decent about 2005. Like, all right, we're moving in the right direction. We just added the best pitcher in free agency, the best position player in free agency. So the expectation was 85 wins. They won 83. So it was kind of right on when you really think about it. But it was the first time in years in which the Mets at least came close to matching the expectations coming into a season. 2006, oh, you could feel it. You go add Carlos Delgado. I don't think we had a feeling that they were going to be the best team in Major League Baseball, but certainly a feeling of they could take the next step and be a playoff team. So their over-under going into that year was 91, the highest over-under they've ever had other than 1999. And again, if you skipped around this podcast, I, I cannot find any over-under prior to 1990. So take the 80s out. Obviously, if there was a number in 86, it would be red hot, especially after what they did in 84 and 85. So it's really the, I guess, the modern era of Met baseball, if you want to include the last 33 years as the modern era. But 91 wins, it was the second highest win total in the National League in terms of expectations, and they went out and they won 97 games. The Atlanta Braves underperformed in a big-time way because the Braves that year were still in the midst of winning the division every year, had an over-under of 89. This was the year they finally hit rock bottom and only won 79 games. So the Braves became a non-factor in 2006. In 2007, coming off a year in which the Mets were clearly the best team in the National League, I'm skipping over what happened in the 06 playoffs because you already know. You don't, you don't need me to explain it. We don't, we don't need to go through that in painstaking detail. We'll save another podcast for that. 2007, they actually nailed their expectations. 88 wins, which is exactly where the Mets finished. Problem was, midst of the season, I think that bar would have been higher. They couldn't win a game in September and completed one of the great collapses in the history of the sport. So they nailed their expectations of 88 wins. And you know what I find funny about this? So I look back at, okay, the Met expectation was 88. What was the Phillies' expectation? Because the big story in 07 was that Jimmy Rollins had claimed were the team to beat. And we all looked at him and said, what's that based on? The Mets were the best team in the National League a year earlier. They won the division going away. Why are you going into this season with that belief? The Phillies over-under was 88.5, basically the same as the Mets. So Vegas certainly went into the season thinking they're on an even playing field, and obviously they nailed that too because the Phillies only won one more game than the Mets, which was 89. 2008, Mets added Johan Santana. That raises the expectations to 93.5, the highest over-under total on record. So if that's the, you're looking the answer to the trivia question prior to this season, highest over-under in the last 33 years, it was actually 2008, which again, makes sense. <coughs> you're at it, Johan. <coughs> yeah, that choke is symbolic. It's symbolic of the choking of that era. Excuse me for a second. It's only fitting. It's only fitting that that's when I choke up thinking about this mess. Though they didn't choke in 2008. They just lost a brutal pennant race. But they had expectations of 93.5 wins. They won 89 wins. We were all devastated. 2009, brand new stadium. They add Frankie Rodriguez. They add J.J. Putz. We went into 09, yeah. 
expecting this team to win. Why wouldn't we? And maybe not win the World Series. Maybe there was something rotten with the core, like Francesa used to say. But they won 88 games in 07. They won 89 games in 08. There was certainly no belief that after four consecutive winning seasons that the Mets were all of a sudden going to fall off the rooftop, but they did. 90 and a half was the win total expectation going into 2009. And 2009 was all about the painful loss. Think about how many brutal losses the Mets had in 09. You have the Ryan Church game in L.A., which I was at. That was brutal where he misses third base. You've got the Luis Castillo game, which the Yes Network still shows on loop as a Yankee classic, and it just collapsed in the second half of the season. They have expectations of 90 and a half. They win 70 games. This harkens back to the early 2000s, like 03, when they were below their over-under by 20 games. They were below their over-under here by 20 games. Then the expectations start to get levied out. 2010, 80 and a half wins. They win 79. Right on the button. 2011, 77 and a half wins. They win 77 games. Uncanny. 2012, 73 and a half wins. They win 74 games. How about this? 2013, 75 wins was the expectation. They win 74. So the Mets have a four-year period. Kind of crazy where bars low. You know, slightly under 500 team, and they're spot on. (laughs) I mean, you couldn't have nailed it any better. 2014, the expectation was 74 wins. They won 79. So they over, kind of over hit by five games. And I remember at the close of the 14 season, this was the year I met my now wife. And I'll never forget sitting with her on a very cold night at City Field in September. The Mets are going nowhere, they're under 500. And I'm kind of showing her the errors of my way as a sports fan. But I say something to her that would be very prophetic. I said, this team's about to turn. And she said, what do you mean? I said, I can feel it. You can feel it. You can see it. This is about to turn. Now, I didn't think necessarily the following year they were going to win the National League pennant. But I said to her, we'll be back in this building in September of next year and the games will matter. I'm confident of that. So as negative as I have been in my lifetime as a sports fan, I couldn't have been alone on this. There was a sense of turning. Matt Harvey's coming back. Zach Wheeler's here, even though he would be a non-factor in 15. We didn't know this at the time. Jacob DeGrom is offering a rookie of the year season. You could feel it. Noah Syndergaard's on the way. Travis Darno is on the way. David Wright is here. Like, you could just sense it. And so the expectations going into 2015 were certainly higher. Not skyrocket high, but they had moved up to 82 and a half. And my belief going into the season is this can be a playoff team. This can be a wild card team. This is a team that very well could be in that wild card game. Now, they were helped out by two things that none of us could see coming to where they overshot their expectations and won 90 games. Number one, Yoannis Cespedes. They made a trade that changed everything because this Met lineup in 2015 at times was embarrassingly bad. It included a game 
and this is the only time I've ever experienced this, in which it was the height of the Met lineup being pathetic. John Mayberry was the cleanup hitter. And the Mets were facing the Dodgers at City Field, and Clayton Kershaw was on the mound. And it was the only time where I sat down, and there's a buzz before the game starts that Kershaw is going to pitch a no-hitter. And the reason that buzz existed was twofold. Obviously, Kershaw was the most dominant pitcher in baseball, but then also, look at this lineup. This is not a major league lineup. And Kershaw went out, and if memory serves correct, through like five perfect innings. So it was the only time you'll ever sit there, expect someone to threaten to pitch a no-hitter in a perfect game, and then actually threaten to pitch a no-hitter in a perfect game. But Sandy changed that when he trades for Cespedes. The other thing was the Washington Nationals. The Nationals went into that season with an over-under of 94, and they flamed out. They only won 83 games. So the two things that led to the Mets not only beating their expectations, but then turning it into a division championship was the trade of Cespedes and the demise of the Nationals. Following year, expectations have skyrocketed. They are the defending National League champions, 89 and a half. Second highest total in all of Major League Baseball. And they were in that range. They won 87 games, which actually was pretty good considering all the injuries they faced. Matt Harvey got hurt. Jacob DeGrom got hurt. Basically, the rotation was Noah Syndergaard, Bartolo Colon, Aaron Heilman, and Seth Lugo down the stretch of the year. They obviously got to the wild card game. We all know what happened there. So they were right around the expectations. 2017. The numbers aren't going to back me up on this based on the other examples I've given. But 2017 is the most disappointing season in my lifetime as a Met fan. I stand by that. Because the Mets are coming off a year in which they somehow won 87 games despite all the injuries. And still came this close. I'm holding my fingers together. This close to getting to the divisional series. They're in the wild card game. They are hosting it. Uh, just a great pitcher's duel between an all-time great Madison Bumgarner and Noah Syndergaard. So now the feeling is, okay, Harvey's going to be healthy. DeGrom's going to be healthy. Syndergaard looks like an ace. Zach Wheeler should be on his way back. Oh, my God. This team's going to be awesome. Cespedes signs the big contract. He's going to be around for a while. And their over-under was 87.5, so in a similar range. They went out and won 70 games. It was a disaster. It was an unmitigated disaster. Syndergaard gets hurt. The Grom has a very average season. Matt Harvey's donezo. Zach Wheeler can't pitch. Cespedes gets run over by a bull. Was that the same year? Probably not, but whatever. It all runs together with him. They finished 17 and a half games below their expectations. So while we have other years, like 2009, where they're 20 and a half games under their expectations, to me, this was the worst one. For my money, in my lifetime, 2017, biggest disaster ever. 2018, expectations lowered. Brand new manager, 82 and a half wins the expectation. They get off to that great start. They end up winning 77 games. 2019, expectations raised to 85 and a half. It's pretty much exactly where they finished. They won 86 games. Problem with 2019 is they had about eight losses that will take years off your life. And if you win a handful of those games, you make the playoffs. If Daniel Murphy's still around, you make the playoffs. (laughs) 
Nah, that was well past Daniel Murphy. But you know what I mean? Like, they had so many losses in 2019 that if you win three or four of them, you're in the wild card game. The Nationals were in the wild card game, and we all know what happened. They got hot at the right time. They won the World Series. They won the wild card game. They won the Divisional Series. They won the LCS. And boom, they're winning a Game 7 of the World Series on the road. 2020 is weird. The over-under was 32.5 in the 60-game season. They won 26 games. That was a massive disappointment. I think the thought was with more playoff teams, shortened season, DH, hey, this is going to work. The Mets could at least get to the playoffs. And I guess looking back on it now, maybe it's good that they didn't. It would have been weird. It was such a weird season. Like if the Mets had won the World Series that year and no one's around, I don't know. It would have been strange. So... I guess I chalked that one aside. They also had like god-awful pitching that year. It was brutal. 2021 is amazing to me. 2021, their expectations two years ago was 90 and a half wins. Steve Cohen's the owner. They add Francisco Lindor. You got the greatest pitcher in the world in Jacob DeGrom without injury concerns because this is prior to basically missing, you know, a chunk of time in two consecutive seasons. And they had 90-and-a-half win expectations. We all remember it. It was recent. First place most of the year. Completely collapsed late in the year. Ended up winning 77 games. Then you have last year. 88-and-a-half wins. They win 101 games. Blowing away the expectations by 12-and-a-half games. And they win 101 games. And here we are in this season. 2023. With expectations the highest they've been in 30-plus years of 95-and-a-half wins. And I'll say this to you right now, and we'll obviously go more in-depth on this team in this division as we creep towards spring training. I would sign right now. Sign me up for the exact over-under win total that's being presented for them. And if you look at the past, when the Mets have hit their expectations Sometimes that's not good enough. You know, in 2011, their expectation was 77. They won 77. In 2010, their expectation was 80. They won 79. But if you can win 95 games, 95 games, which they have only hit one, two, three times in the last 30 plus years, not exactly a win total. They hit a lot. If you win 95 games, I'll take my chances. Because a lot of this is dependent on everybody else. You know, I mentioned 2015. A part of why winning 90 games was enough in 2015 was the division they were in. Last year was the opposite. You win 101 games, you should win the division. You win 101 games, you should have the best record in your league. Well, neither was the case last year. They didn't even have the best record in their own division. Or at least they finished tied with the best record in their own division. So sometimes these win totals are just really dependent on what everyone else does. I think the Atlanta Braves are going to be really good this year. I think the Philadelphia Phillies should win a lot of games this year. But even knowing that, eyes wide open, if they can just hit their expectation of 95 wins, that's good enough for me. Does it mean they win the division? I don't know. It's 50-50. I have no idea. But it should be good enough to make the postseason. That's for damn sure. And one lesson from a year ago, just make the postseason. And that's the other thing. How we feel about this season is all going to be dependent on that. The Philadelphia Philly fan did not love what they accomplished in the regular season last year, but they wiped it away. 
because they won two straight games against the Cardinals. They beat Atlanta. They beat San Diego. All of a sudden, they're sitting there in the World Series. So how we feel about this season won't be win totals. It'll be what the hell happens in October. But the expectations are high. And we got to own that as Met fans. And for the first time, maybe in our history, the Mets are the team that people are going to want to mock. I want to warn you about that. Now, I've had some experience with this with Brooklyn, with the Nets, where everybody wants to kill them. And in fact, most people listening want to kill them. And I respect it. You want to mock them. Oh, you got all these superstars. You win nothing. You become the bullseye. The Mets, because of their payroll, they're the bullseye. And we are going to get a lot of slings and a lot of arrows. And I'm already seeing it now. In January and February, I've seen it. I've seen Atlanta Brave beat reporters mock the Met payroll in unrelated things. Like the NFL salary cap is coming out. And I saw one Brave reporter say, well, that number is a lot lower than the Met payroll. (laughs) So be prepared. Be prepared that we are now the hunted. We are no longer the little engine that could. There have been times throughout our history in which we've been that. We're not. Mets lose a series. There will be talk about payroll. Mets have a losing streak. There'll be talk about this whole thing being a bust. This is now the life we live. And with it comes huge expectations. And if you're unfamiliar with how this is going to feel, I'm not joking. Ask a Yankee fan. Because we are them without the championships. <laughs> We're them without the resume. So when you look at the expectations of the last 30 years, and it's sort of fascinating to see where we overachieved, where we underachieved, where we nailed expectations, we have to own what we are now, which is this franchise has the highest expectations it has had in the last 30-plus years. And with that comes a huge-ass bullseye. That's for damn sure. We'll go more in depth as we get closer and closer to spring training. Again, next week, it'll be the Super Bowl Sunday into Monday edition of the Rico Bronya. That's when we'll devote the entire episode to our rewatch game, which is Game 7 of the 1986 World Series. You can email the pod anytime, thericob at gmail.com. Yeah, ricob at gmail.com. Yeah, thericob at gmail.com. You can tweet at me or Pete. And obviously, we appreciate you downloading and listening to Rico Bronya. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.